Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one-third of the greatest rock and roll band ever from Husker Du, now on tour with his brand new fantastic band, Ultra Bomb, Greg Norton is here. More on that in one second, but first... If you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, but shout out to Melanie K for booking this episode. Um, and uh, he will get the message to me. You can find me uh, over at Twitter or Instagram at Left for Damien. There is a TikTok page, a YouTube page channel a Instagram page and a Facebook page all for this podcast at turned out a punk on those respective platforms. I play in a band. We are called fucked up and we are going to be going on tour with one of my favorite groups. Another one of my favorite groups, the hallucination. We will be going across Canada with them and our buddy Daniel Maccabe will be joining us for some of the dates doing some wrestling stuff. It's going to be, it's going to be a show and a half. I promise you that. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc and pick up tickets and uh, come hang out. It's going to be a fun, I think it's going to be probably the, the most fun fucked up show ever. I know that's putting a lot of burden on this thing, but I, I, I kind of got that feeling. Um, and there's going to be some uh, stuff dropping this week about that tour. Some uh, music. Spoiler. All right, uh, more information once again, fuckedup.cc. On to today's show. As I said off the top, thank you to my buddy, Melanie Kay, because when uh, she called me and said, would you like to have Greg Norton on the show? I said, absolutely, because as I mentioned, I think Who's Do are probably like the greatest rock and roll band, one uh, like one of, if not the, for me, of all time, like a band that has inspired me so much, inspired my band, some members more than they even admit and uh, there is a, uh, a huge, huge debt that is owed to this band by everyone here. And so, yeah, Greg is someone I've always wanted to talk to, someone I've never had a chance to meet, someone who stopped playing music for a number of years. And we talk about all of that on this show. As I also said off the top, Ultra Bomb have a brand new album, Time to Burn. You can pick it up over at ultrabomb.com and... Uh, Ultrabombmusic, sorry, .com. Ultrabombmusic.com. And while you're over there, check out the tour dates. Because I also, as I said, Greg is currently on tour with Ultrabomb across the United States. You can see them um, you know, starting uh, Indianapolis, if you're listening to this the day it drops. And there's going to be tons of other shows coming up. So you can go over to Ultrabombmusic.com, find out tickets and dates for those shows, and go and check out Ultrabomb's uh, record, as I said, because it is a great record. And uh, I think you'll probably enjoy the live show. I wish it was coming to Canada, but it is not. But you can go to it if you're in the, in the States. And they're playing punk rock bowling. So if you're going to punk rock bowling, be sure to check out Ultra Bomb down there. I think that's it for me. I don't know um, if I have uh, anything to uh, keep dragging this out with other than to say uh, I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks again to Melanie. And uh, check out Ultra Bomb on tour. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Greg Norton. Unturned out a punk. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Well, as I was just telling you off air, you're a huge influence on, uh, well, not only myself, actually, like, I think you're just one of the most, you know, as part of Husker Du, one of the most influential bands, uh, you know, in, in, in modern music history, but also a member of Shotgun Rationale, a band that <laughs> I have loved, and I'm very curious to find out about all this. But I got to start it off the way they all start off, which is, Greg, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Uh, yes, I do. So, um, you know, I graduated high school in 1977. Uh, there was a um, uh, young lady in my journal- journalism class who uh, she she really liked uh this band called ultravox and um which didn't actually their their first record is one of my all-time favorites Fantastic. but uh so anyway get out of high school and uh the following winter a friend of mine gets a job working in a record store at a suburban mall and it gets me a job at the same record store where that's you know i happen to run into this kid out at the food court and he's like hey you took my job and i'm like who are you and he's like my name's grant and i was supposed to get that job and so uh i brought grant back into the store talked my friend bill into giving him a job too and uh grant that's how i met grant hart we became really good friends uh you know so this is um spring of of 78 all of these great records are are just starting to get released uh putting them on listening to them it was like holy cow what is this stuff you know it's like uh oh sorry my dog's my dog likes to bark at the wind (laughs) um so uh you know that the uh, radio birdman and and uh uh the saints on um and and the, the, the talking heads and and the ramones i think sire records their big uh advertising push was new wave get behind it before it gets past you you know which was which i think is so funny and uh but you know patty smith and and the sex pistols and the vibrators and just all of this stuff coming out um the local a local punk band called the suicide commandos uh released their only record on blank records and the other band assigned to blank was paraubu uh grant and i started going to the longhorn in in minneapolis to see shows we saw so many great shows down there uh end up meeting bob mold later you know at the end of that summer uh but no the first time i i heard punk it was it just like blew me away and i'm like wow this is kind of what my life has been missing working at a record store too it's kind of like you know you're you're privy to this whole explosion that's happening like you brought up at this time where it's sort of this cultural groundswell that really starts i think for me you know around 74 when you have like dr feelgood at the same time you have kind of like these percolations of stuff happening with like the nerves and stuff in la Mm -hmm. but you know as this thing kind of hits did like what were you into kind of prior to this in terms of music uh you know i had very eclectic tastes um my 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 dad was was really into big band music, Stan Kenton in particular, and uh, and he loved Tony Bennett. Uh, my siblings are um, a bit older than I am, so my my sister was, you know, uh, 
a teenager in the early 60s with, uh, you know, the British invasion and, and the Beatles in particular. Um, my brother was, uh, you know, bringing home, you know, Hendrix and Zeppelin and, and, and Black Sabbath and stuff like that. Uh, I had actually been hanging out in record stores for, uh, you know, a good four or five years before starting to work in one. Uh, in the store that I hung out in, the the, the two main clerks, they were actually, um, you know, so 72, 73, 74, you know, it's, uh, so many great records coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the guys that that uh, were working the counter, they were they were jazz guys. So one was really into John Coltrane. The other one was really into Miles Davis. Got turned on to elect, uh, like Morton Sabotnik and, and electronic music. Uh, you know, it, it's even listened to some Carl Heinz Stockhausen in high school type of thing. You know, it, it's listened to a lot of weird shit. Yeah. So punk kind of fell right in my wheelhouse, so to speak, you know. Um, but then again, it's like all my high school friends were into like Marshall Tucker Band and um, the Almond Brothers. And, you know, and I mean, those were great bands, too. You know, they, they put out really great records, but it just didn't resonate the same way that, that punk did with me. And I think it was um, I, I had a lot of very talented uh, musician friends in high school and uh, they always felt they were way more talented than I was and that I could never play as well as, or sing as well as they did. And then punk came along and like, I can fucking do that. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it was a, you know, and it still is the sort of accessible genre for a young person where you don't have to like, look at these heroes that seem to be carved out of a marble. Like this is something that you can do. And because of that, you know, like it, it's way more important to me to hear someone passionate about something. And I think that's kind of like where we've moved music wise. Like people want to hear the passion more they want than they want to hear virtuosity at this point. Right. Yep. Well, you know, definitely. Um, I, I definitely had those heroes, though, too. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, two two bands that that went on to superstardom that uh, that I hated after they made it really big was uh Fleetwood Mac basically after the uh uh Peter Green left the band I thought they were just you know schlock commercialism and um and I hate what Roger Waters did to Pink Floyd uh starting with the wall I think the wall is the biggest piece of crap that ever got recorded that people just put up on this pedestal and 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 revere as like one of the greatest things ever. In my opinion, I thought it was like, oh, he's trying to fucking be punk. He's not punk. Fuck him. It's funny you bring up those two bands too, because like, you know, Piper of the Gates of Dawn and mm-hmm. certainly Peter Green era Pink Floyd. I'm sorry, uh, um, I'm Fleetwood Mac is this sort of uh, almost like proto-punk in a way. The Groundhogs are kind of that way too. There's mm-hmm. a sort of like energy that exists pre- this explosion that we're talking about that you're talking about kind of witnessing firsthand at the record store uh, that you can kind of feel and, and trace back all the way, you know, Stooges, Velvet Underground, obviously kind of get celebrated for that. But there's like a lot of other stuff, particularly in England, that's fascinating Hawkwind and, and Pink Fairies and all that sort of stuff. And Oh yeah. Yep. And it'd be interesting because that stuff I'm now, 
I, I kind of got in during the reissue boom, but to see that stuff happening at the time, like it would have been really hard to kind of find out, out about these records. And like, what was drawing you to be that kid in the record store that kind of was, because you had to put in work back then. It wasn't just like an algorithm or a search. It was like, you had to like put up with the assholes of the record store sometimes, and then ultimately become part of that world to kind of find out about all this stuff because it is, it's deep culture back then. Yep. Uh, you know, the records were coming out. There were there, the, the, the record companies did a great job with getting promos out. So promos would come in. It's like every be a fight over to, to who can claim it. Uh, but you know, opening up store copies, it's like, you know, something came in that was new and you wanted to hear it. You just opened it and played it, you mm -hmm. know? Um, everybody had a stack of records behind the bar that like, you know, I'm going to buy these someday type thing, you know? Uh, if it, if it looked punk, we, we opened it and we played it. And then, you know, obviously there, there were a lot of bands that like, were like, oh, uh, gee, I better cut my hair and put on a skinny tie and uh, try to try to fit in with what's going on. Or, um, you know, people aren't, aren't going to pay any attention to me. Uh, so yeah, there were a lot of crappy records too, that we, we listened to, but you know, the thing is, is we listened to so much and, and such a, you know, anything that we could get our hands on and we had a voracious appetite for it. And so when, uh, when, when Husker actually finally got together uh grant and and i were both working at a smaller record store now over on the McAllister college campus in st paul and um uh it was owned by the same guy who owned the suburban store that 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 we initially met at and uh being on a college campus it seemed like it was a little bit easier to to play punk and stuff like that grant had a PA speaker hooked up to the stereo out on the sidewalk one day and was blasting the Ramones. And that's the first time Bob Mould walked by when he uh, showed up for his freshman year in college. He had a brand new spanking black leather jacket, a uh, uh, Johnny Ramone haircut and uh, uh, Chuck Taylor high tops. And he was like, Oh, Hey, I know this band and starts talking to Grant. They became really good friends. And, and, um, you know, I didn't really meet Bob until a few years, uh, not years, but a, a few months later. But, uh, you know, by the time we actually started playing together, we had all been consuming this punk stew, you know, that and um, uh, so it, it, it I don't know, it, it, it just everything just kind of clicked and flowed and um, Bob turns into this songwriting machine which was he still is and um yeah we would just try stuff try whatever it's like you know when the first song we wrote is a song called sex dolls and we called it sex dolls because we thought it sounded like a cross between the sex pistols and the new york dolls <laughs> but that, that's the thing the thing that's amazing, that? I, I think the thing that's amazing about the band is you guys were you know all students of music you know, and this sort of, um, and I think that's the thing about punk that kind of, it's really like a postmodern genre in the sense that this was sort of like the birth of, of music critic kind of record store, uh, people and culture kind of producing their own music. So these were people that, 
you know, like not only are you versed in sort of the, the rock and roll that's happening at the same time, but it's also this sort of free jazz, jazz music that's happening and all sorts of exciting stuff. And, you know, you, you look at that same sort of thing that's happening in Cleveland a few years earlier with like uh, Lautner and, and Perubu and all these sorts of right. guys. Yeah, Rocket from the Tombs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I think the uh, the greatest American punk band that never, you know, uh, never, never really got the recognition that they should have and uh you know uh it it it, it in a way it, it's it sucks that stiv baders broke the band up <laughs> to steal cheetah chrome but we got the dead boys and paraubo out of that so i guess i can live with that yeah it's like interesting to think of how it would have gone with those two forces still existing together because you're right like if you look at kind of like in my opinion, the best Perubu songs. I know that's a, a, a the very confrontational kind of <laughs> discussion to bring up, but and also the best Dead Boys songs on both records, and uh, plus these other songs. You're right. Like if they had put out an album, that would have been, oh my god, that's like that. That's one of the all time great rock records. Right. Yep. Uh, you mentioned. So, oh, sorry. Uh, go on. Ultra Bomb. Uh, just a quick side there. You know, Ultra Bomb. Uh, we recorded uh, Sonic Reducer. It's the last song on on the record, and and we did it in the studio at the very end when we were completely done with the recording. We still had some time and some energy, and uh, and we had talked about like, oh, maybe we should do a cover, and and all three of us were like, yeah, Sonic Reducer, that's the perfect song, uh, and and I sing it, and uh, my vocal channels David Thomas. It doesn't channel Steve Bader's. You brought up Suicide Commandos earlier. Who were some of the other bands that were sort of early on to that that scene that you were hearing about? In in Minneapolis? Yeah. So well the Suicide Commandos, they were they were like, you know, they were the big name. They were uh and, and Chris Osgood actually uh ended up giving Bob Mould some guitar lessons uh before they, they broke up. But uh and and Chris has remained very active in in the music scene and in the arts scene in in Minneapolis and Minnesota. Uh, another one of of the big bands was a band called The Suburbs, and um, you know Twin Tone Records was um, you know they put out The Suburbs, they put out the first Replacements records. Uh, they were they were kind of like the big indie independent label. Uh, the Suburbs early on were, were very punk. Uh, they, they evolved to be more new wave, um, not in a derogatory term uh, way there, but they actually signed to A&M records. Uh, that's a band that is still plays in Minneapolis to, and they sell out first Avenue, which is, you know, 1500 people, um, in the twin cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, the suburbs are probably uh, more popular than than Husker Du ever was locally, uh, and and still are. So, which which I think is is kind of crazy. But you know, and then obviously you know the replacements were uh, they came up right at the same time as we did. Uh, they were playing the Longhorn uh, when we were. Tommy Stinson was 14, so he had to sit in the dressing room until they played and then have to leave. They're, you know, actually probably one of the best bands that uh, from that era 
that uh, they were they were called NNB, and uh, they put out one single locally, a, a, a song called Slack. I highly recommend looking that up and listening to it. It's fantastic. They ended up moving to New York to to you know make it make make have their big break, and uh, they ended up breaking up um, once they got out out to New York, which was unfortunate. They were a really great band. Um, I don't know. They're, they're, those are kind of like the main ones. Were you familiar with the Tulsa Jacks? Like it was the Jacks from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who moved up for a summer? Uh, yeah, the name is familiar, but I don't recall. I don't think we ever played with them or I don't recall seeing them. But I, the name's definitely familiar. Yeah. It's a weird tape that, that um, you know, kind of showed up and then it's been reissued on the sort of Jacks larger reissue that came out. But it's got Tommy Stinson, Bob Mould, and Chris uh, from the suicide command was all playing on songs together. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah it's, it's really interesting. And, and the Jacks are an incredible power pop band from Tulsa at the time. Mm -hmm. You mentioned also earlier, the samplers that were kind of coming around that time period. There's that new wave sampler that I think Sire did. I think it's a double seven inch. That's fantastic. That has, you know, as you said, the dead boys and, but it's also weirdly, I think got the flaming groovies on it too. Oh because, yeah. Yep. You, and I was wondering, is that an influence on you guys early on as well? Because obviously melody is such a huge part of the band. Uh, yes, it was. You know, actually, uh, we're all, all three of us were uh, loved power pop, you know. Uh, it, it, in a way, I think Bob wanted the band to be a power pop band more than a punk band. So, uh, you know, and I, I think that influence comes through the music you know it's it's you know Husker wrote melodic punk right mm -hmm. um hardcore that you could whistle to um but yeah it's uh, uh, and there again it's like the uh the uh a lot of that that stuff the garage stuff you know the um you know big big hits of uh of mid-america the you know the, all those garage band and psycho psych surf bands and stuff like that all those compilations were coming out for these obscure bands from like the 60s um uh, that certainly you know all of that stuff we listened to and 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 to a certain point played played a role in, in our development but yeah i think power pop for sure had um was as almost as big of an influence as punk so it's funny how melody is such a huge thing for like you know all the bands you kind of brought up so far and and certainly you know soul asylum a little bit later on as well and even halo of flies there's like a weird melody kind of running to it and it doesn't seem like like hardcore was as much of a thing later on as much as sort of like the bands that were doing sort of more melodic stuff what was the reception to sort of land speed at that time and sort of like you know you guys coming back being you know not that you ever rejected melody and certainly ultimately became very melodic, but there was certainly a period where it's like way faster than I'm sure anyone else was doing. Uh, you know, when we returned to Minneapolis after our first tour, the, that uh, children's crusade tour that took us through Canada and all the way down the, uh, the Pacific Northwest for an extended stay in San Francisco uh, before we came home, uh, we got home and and land speed record was our uh recording of our first show back and it was at the very end of that tour it was the last show 
And it shocked the local people. They were like, what the fuck happened to you guys? You know, because we were so, uh, so much faster and tighter too, I, I would add. Uh, and, and some people embraced that and some people didn't like it. You know, they, they liked the, um, um, you know, and, and actually in a way it, it's weird because there, there was certainly a, a kind of a Manchester influence on the band, uh, that, and, and Bob was writing like really great songs and that kind of then fell to the, you know, to the wayside when Bob was like, okay, I can do hardcore, uh, in which he could. And, and sometimes maybe I, I think that he was like going like, yeah, watch me write hardcore. I can do this too and do it better than you can. Not that he was saying that, you know, out loud or anything, but, uh, you know, uh, Husker definitely could, you know, hold their own with any, any of the, um, West coast hardcore bands. Mm-hmm. On that first run, you're in Calgary for like a week or something. Yeah. <laughs> a week at the Calgarian. That was, yeah. Uh, that was, a, and, and we were playing three sets a night. Oh my God. Right. Uh, and, and the first couple of, uh, first couple of nights, the, uh, the hotel wanted to fire us and, and, uh, uh, some, some locals came to, to our, uh, defense and actually they're like, Oh, come on, give these guys a chance. And, uh, uh, they rallied some local bands to, to, you know, show up and play with us for, for like the, the last few nights. And, uh, it ended up, it, it ended up being great. Uh, part of our, our pay was we had one room, which happened to be right above, um, so one floor up above the main entrance. So we'd get done playing our set. Our plan, our shows, we'd get paid. They'd give us a case of beer. We'd go upstairs and uh, drink beer and watch uh, all the all the drunks spill out of the bar and getting fights out on uh, in front of the hotel. That was that was our entertainment. And uh, yeah, that that run at the Calgarian was and ended up being really great. And we, you know, we went back and played Calgary again a, um, a, another time. So. Yeah, that was, that was our, our first stretch of shows outside of um, the Midwest. Minneapolis and Chicago, that's all we had played up until that point. It's kind of like a real trial by fire, I imagine, playing to like a, a, a punk crowd. Like obviously the punk crowd were probably very awesome, but I mean like a local crowd in Calgary at that point too that were just happened to be in right. the bar. Yep, because, you know, Calgary being a big, you know, um, cow town. Cow town, uh, oil town. Yep, exactly. So during the day, it was the the bar was, you know, cowboys and oil workers. And, uh, you know, after like six o'clock, then the punks started to come in. But the regulars stayed. They didn't leave, you know, which was interesting. And and, uh, I don't think they necessarily liked what we were doing. But, but, you know, like I said, by the end of the week, uh, everything was a lot better. Although the very last night, uh, the bartender, some some drunk cowboy punched the bartender over the bar, punched him in, in, in the face, gave him a bloody nose. That kind of sucked. But 
besides that, it, it yeah, no, I was, uh, those were some fun shows. It's, it's interesting to kind of think that like, you know, you guys ultimately are carving this path that, you know, on your tour, you're still following like this path that like, you know, I think it's credit to black flag. I think more recently people are, are realizing it was actually probably DOA, right. That was the original sort of. Yep. Yeah. DOA and, and also the, uh, the subhumans from, um, Absolutely, yeah. from Vancouver. Yep. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, no black, uh, or excuse me, DOA actually DOA and the subhumans both had come through Minneapolis and played at, uh, the seventh street entry. We opened up for both bands. That's how we got to know these guys. Uh, it's actually, uh, Ken Lester, who was the DOA's manager that hooked, hooked me up with the uh connection for the calgarian so we played we played calgary for that week from there we went and actually stayed with dave greg um with doa we spent maybe a couple weeks or, or at least a week there and we played you know a couple shows at the smiling buddha we went over we played uh victoria with uh opening for the subhumans on on um canada day and uh doa actually in vancouver that day doa was opening up for stiff little fingers and stiff little fingers were like one of our favorite bands ever you know they were just such a uh, huge influence but we couldn't go to that show because we were in, over in victoria fast forward up and uh till just a couple of years ago i meet henry clooney henry lives in rochester minnesota uh when he had his brain tumor he uh the male clinic operated on him he decided to you know met uh, a local woman uh basically he lives in rochester when he's not back over in ireland touring with xslf and henry is a super nice guy uh he actually jumped up and played uh we played some songs together in in um uh, Porcupine, the band that I was in before, um, Ultra Bomb. And, uh, so that was, that, that was a huge thrill. On that first tour, uh, you guys spend a lot of time in Seattle. And I was wondering that that was probably with the Fastbacks, I imagine, right? Uh, no, it wasn't with the Fastbacks. Uh, so a friend of ours, Peter Davis from Minneapolis, uh, and he, he put out a fanzine called Your Flesh, yep. which I think is still around. And uh, so he had some friends and, and kind of hooked us up there uh, for a place to stay. And uh, we, 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 play, we play a show at this small club, meet some people. Uh, the Dead Kennedys are coming to town and we somehow miraculously get ourselves talked onto the bill as the opening band. So it was... Um, us, a local band called the Farts, uh, where the A has got a circle around it, because, you know, that's punk. And then uh, uh, DOA and the Dead Kennedys. And and um, Jello Biafra was like, holy shit, you guys are, that, that was amazing. It's like, well, where, do you, where are you going from here? It's like, well, we have one show booked in Portland after this. Uh, we want to go to California, but we don't have anything we don't have any, any shows. And he's like, come on down to San Francisco. You can stay with me. And it, the Africa got us our 
um, you know, talked to Dirk Dirksen at uh, Mabue and got us on on some bills there. So we played a couple of couple of shows at the Mabue Gardens. We did uh, we did a festival at a park over in Berkeley. Uh, while we were there, we ended up we got a show up in Sacramento. You know, we were actually we were in San Francisco long enough that um, I uh, technically qualified for food stamps. And um, uh, I think I still have my re have the receipt from the from the, the city office when I went down and, and got food stamps. We ate good that night. Took our, our per diem money and bought beer instead of um, food. So <laughs> uh, that fart uh, also featured Duff McKagan. A young Duff McKagan on bass from Guns N' oh, really? Roses. Yeah, and uh, oh, funny, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I think uh, I think he told me this, or it might have been Bob, but uh, someone uh, told me that he was watching TV, and uh, you guys came in and threw him out of the room so you could watch wrestling. So <laughs> <laughs> that's that sounds right. We probably did. Yep. Yeah. So you were? Are, were you a big wrestling fan as well? Uh, you know, yes, I was. So uh, you know. That, that was just one of those goofy things where, where, you know, Bob shows up in Minnesota and, you know, Minnesota was, was the, uh, Minneapolis was the home of the American wrestling association, the, the AWA, which was Vern Gagne and, um, uh, everyone, everyone came through the AWA. Like that's like, that's famously where Vince stole, uh, the future of, you know, mainstream American wrestling through that, that came through that promotion. Oh yeah, Vince. Vince totally stole everybody from the a a AWA. But uh, uh, yeah, the future future governor of of uh, Minnesota was uh, you know a AWA uh, Jesse Jesse the Body Ventura with uh, you know uh, actually uh, the the three of us went to the St. Paul Civic Center for this big. AWA match where where Jesse and Adrian Adrian Adonis uh, won the uh, the World Tag Team Championship, you know. So, uh, no, it, it's like I I had been watching wrestling since I was a little kid. It, you know, it would come on on what Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings, and you'd watch it. And and uh, I remember my my granddad uh, used to watch it. You know, the the local circuit would. They'd, they'd get around the Midwest. They'd like play the Quad Cities, you know, they'd play uh, all around. So, yeah, no, it, it had been um, a big part of uh, entertainment for me for, for a long time. <laughs> yep. And then Bob loved it so much that, um, you know, he went on to, to work in the industry. And you guys played Wrestling Challenge, I just saw. Like, I was looking at a, a list of uh, Who's Could Do shows, and one of them was Wrestling Challenge? That AWA uh, show? That, I don't recall. Okay, I was like, I don't, I've never yeah. heard about that Wait, before. We, we did play in a uh, wrestling ring in uh, Madison Square Gardens, which <laughs> happened to be a, uh, like a, uh, like a warehouse on the outskirts of uh, Phoenix and it was called Madison square garden. It was the stage. You literally played inside the wrestling ring. There was the chain link fence separating the ring from the audience. And uh, you know, basically there was kind of an open floor and then some bleachers. And uh, that was, that was a fun show. Yeah. There were, there were people hanging on the chain link fence and, and um, 
you know, of course, and then uh, when, when we showed up before we set up the equipment, you know, everybody took a turn on the bouncing around on the turnbuckles and stuff. So that was, I think, JFA's venue or JFA played there too quite a bit, right? I think that yeah, it could be. Yep, probably. That Arizona scene's wild, like the feeders, Mighty Sphincter, and stuff like that. Like it feels like every scene back then had its kind of like own unique uh, style. You know, and it, it's something that I think is probably changing now because I think, you know, obviously the accessibility of culture and music is just so different. But at that time, it feels like every town kind of had, you know, New Orleans punk wasn't necessarily like Arizona punk, which wasn't at all like the stuff that was happening in Austin. Right. Yeah, totally. It's like every, you know, it, it's. Every scene had their own their own bubble, right? You know, and it, it's it's free internet, it's free, um, which I, I I thought was was great. You know, uh, you've got these these little bubbles of, of congruent evolution popping up, but everybody's got their own slightly different take on it. You know, yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier being into like the Manchester stuff when you guys played La Hacienda in '85. Was that like significant at that point, or was that kind of before that kind of like had sunk in culturally? No, that was uh, that was like it's like holy shit, we're playing the Hacienda. This is great, you know. So uh, it 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 registered, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was that tour in in Europe like in '85? Like going because you got you guys went all over there. I think you went to Sweden and stuff too. Uh, that was a really good tour. So yeah, we we did. Um, uh, Norway, Sweden. Um, I don't think we did Finland until 87. Uh, Am- um, uh, a couple of shows in, 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 uh, the Netherlands, a few shows in Germany. Uh, we did Austria, uh, a lot of shows in, in, in England and in Scotland. Uh, that was a really good tour. Yeah. It's interesting to kind of think of that as well, because, you know, now for bands from, you know, Canada and America, going to Europe is just part of the the thing after a certain point. But at that point, international touring was still, you know, like, like there's different cult- currencies in every single city you go to. And oh, yeah. Gotta... Yeah. Yeah. That was that was one of the things that's um, touring through Europe. Every day, it was a different, a new language and a new type of money. You had to figure out, like, okay, what is, what, how much is this now th- that I have in my hand? I don't, you know, so you, trying to buy something, you'd be like, yeah, here, just here's a handful of money. Just take what, whatever you need, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, that tour in 85, it was just uh, the three of us plus um, Zop Yard, our, um, tour manager and uh, Mick Brown, a couple of English guys that, that, um, you know, Mick did our uh, stage setup and stage sound. Uh, and so we were our own roadies. So we played at, um, in Hamburg and the, the opening, opening bands are done. And so we're setting up our gear and everybody, you know, all the punks are just kind of milling around. And then we start playing and nobody's really paying attention to us and it's about three or four songs in when people go like 
oh shit, I think this is actually Husker Du. This is the band that we that we're here to see. <laughs> and talking to, to some people afterwards, they're like, well, you know, we we've never seen any photos of the band. We d- didn't know what you guys look like. We, you know, from from like, you know, listening to like Land Speed record. We just thought you were like all these would be like all like six six and with big huge mohawks and black leather jackets and and just you know super punks and yeah we thought you were just the roadies and just kind of uh doing a sound check <laughs> and we're like nope uh and, and after that grant and i walked through the through the um after everybody had left we we're kind of walking through the venue and we did see a few husker do buttons that looked like they had been thrown down in disgust and stomped like, these guys aren't punk <laughs> a very german response to uh punk bands to this day in some cases yep, yep. um what were those shows mainly kind of like squat venues or were you already kind of playing club shows by that point no these were these were all club shows yeah uh you know actually when we played uh england and and in in um uh europe they were all they were all legitimate club shows we didn't do any any squat shows because we we were actually working with an agency called the agency so they were you know booking us into real venues oh you're already with the agency by that point yep oh wow so that that must have come pretty early i guess like in terms of like were you in north america were you still being booked through sst at that in that early uh well no actually SST never never booked us uh we we were self booked uh until uh let's see we had Frank Riley take over probably right after Zen Arcade so at the beginning of of eighty five okay um and I can't think of what Frank used to call his agency it's the high road touring now but um anyway yeah Frank Riley and and when he just started out. It's interesting too because you're also providing like a roadmap that I think future bands that play aggressive music wind up following in terms of like how do you pursue this long term? What do you do in terms of like trying to level up but not, you know, necessarily go for it in the way that a punk band probably shouldn't necessarily go for it. You know, like, you know, getting that point in, in our band's career where, you know, you're not necessarily a hardcore band anymore, but like what are you next? You know, and and um, in a way that that is the most punk thing that you can do is mm-hmm. evolve and uh, and and change, and and you're going to end up leaving fans behind that don't want you to change, but that's just how it goes, you know. Uh, it it's you grow as, as a person, you grow as a as a musician and a songwriter. Your your outlook on on life changes constantly you know um i did a a interview for psychology today a a few years ago and we talked exactly about this and and how you know for a lot of fans they they there's like one thing that they like oh that's that album is the best thing ever and then you can never do anything after that that will equal that and so as you evolve, new fans, though, will pick up on on what you're doing and, and they pick something that, that is their benchmark. Um, so fans get mad when when bands evolve, but 
really like punk is about you know doing what you want to do do it yourself do you know it's not conforming to what somebody else thinks you should be or sound like and so if you piss bands off along the way i guess you're just being punk right <laughs> yeah absolutely well like it's funny glenn matlock was recently on the show and uh he was talking about like just the fact that he still has to the sex whistles was just like this little fraction of my life oh for sure yeah even as a songwriter as amazing as it is it's also ultimately a bit of a burden to just have to be like almost answer for it for the rest of your life something you did as a teenager that, that really yeah had... that's 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 his albatross right yeah one record one like and i love all his stuff like the creation record i think that he did years later is is awesome i think he's a great songwriter the whole way stuff he did with iggy you know but uh certainly that is a a, a heavy cultural thing to kind of bear i guess yeah you know and I, actually you you know um you hear that from people all the time how they like oh i have to play this one thing or you know and i fucking can't stand it anymore but that's what the people are there for well i think now it's even worse right because of tiktok you hear about these artists that have these shows where people are only there for 15 seconds they're not even there for the oh. hit anymore right yep <laughs> yeah i can believe that that's that's insane yep uh jumping back to ken lester i just kind of want to you know have if you have any memories of Ken, because he's someone who has come up a lot on this show in a lot of different ways, I think over the years, but someone that, you know, as you said, had like a huge impact on the way we, we tour this music and, and this music in general. Ken was, was a, uh, uh, he's a super nice guy or I don't know. Is he still alive? I think he passed away uh, last year. If I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. Sorry to hear that. Uh, he was a super nice guy. And, and if, uh, that, uh, if that's not right, he still is a super nice guy. Anyway, uh, he was super, he was really helpful. Um, uh, you know, he recognized that, that we had something and that we wanted to go beyond just our local stage. And he did everything that he could do to help us with phone numbers and, and, um, uh so when when we got to vancouver you know we hung out with ken uh probably ken and dave more than 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 anybody else but uh like i said he he did what he could to help get us on shows help us um you know get the word out uh you know that that the 1981 you know the 82 83 those those early touring years i mean it, it really was like the wild west everybody was always like you know looking for a city that had a venue that would first off would have you uh and to play and you knew that there was like okay there's a bird there, there's a scene there's something starting there so like let's go and let's play and, uh, you know, Ken was just really great with sharing information. Uh, and like I said, super nice guy. It's fascinating how many ex sort of yippies wind up being sort of foundational, that early punk scene, you know, like that Madam's Organ venue in DC being a yippie spot. And um, oh, I can't remember the guy's name now out of New York. 
that was like key involved in the scene and Ken Lester, obviously like, it feels like that was sort of, uh, you know, an interesting kind of holdover or something like, you know, in the same way there was proto punk music, there's like proto DIY activist culture that almost is sort of foundational of this too. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it's, uh, people that, that, uh, don't want to just settle for the status quo fight against the, uh, um, being normal. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And you guys met Burroughs too, right? Like there was a, we did. Yep. So the, uh, uh, through John Giorno in New York and the Giorno poetry system guy. So Giorno was a fan of ours. And the first time that we played New York, uh, was a, a club called great Gildersleeves in, in the Bowery. And it was really close to where Burroughs had an, an apartment. So that's the first time we met Burroughs. There, there's a, a photo that's out on the internet uh, of the three of us. Burroughs is standing up. Uh, John Giorno's in the photo as well. We all have canes. Um, uh, and then uh, it, it, when we started playing in Lawrence, uh, we were invited to, to Bill's place and we met met him at his home uh the very first time he's like oh i don't really have anything to offer you but i've got there's a little bit of vodka there and there's some flat warm diet coke if you want to drink and we're all like oh that's okay but uh uh one of one of my best memories of of going to to uh bill burroughs's house in lawrence was he taught us how to throw knives um back behind the house next to the garage and so we're all out there we're throwing knives at like this big wood plank type thing uh you know and obviously grant and and bill burroughs became uh better friends and uh so yeah no that that was that was cool what kind of hang was he like obviously you're out there throwing knives but like was he was he chill was he a funny guy or is it like fairly uh, he, yeah he definitely had a dry sense of humor so yeah. you know uh wouldn't necessarily say that he was a spitball firecracker type of a personality, but uh, oh, it, it was fun. It's interesting because like Ginsburg also with the, the gluons in Colorado and like doing a punk record with them and doing that kind of punk solo spoken word record on local, uh, whatever that record label is, sorry, I'm blanking on now, but um, you know, it feels like they're another, like sort of this other group that's kind of like, kind of waiting for punk in a way and like proto-punk in a, in a spiritual way. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, I guess in a way we're kind of channeling the, the same things that the rest of us are, you know, mm -hmm. um, taking a, a stand against being boring and normal. <laughs> I don't know. Because at a certain point, you walk away from music. Like at the end of Husker Du, you know, Grant and Bob kind of run off and, and look like they're in a, in, well, they were kind of like in a hurry to kind of do other stuff. But you kind of step away and now here you're kind of like back getting into touring in a way. And I know you've done other stuff over the years, but I kind of want to talk to you about like the change in, you know, you mentioned the evolution of a human being over the course of their lifetime, but like the evolution away from this and then the evolutions back to it at different points. Like, yeah. do you find yourself getting burnt out? Is that it? Or is it more just like you 
want to avoid getting burnt out. And that's why you're walking away at different times. Yeah. So who's going to breaks up, you know, at the beginning of 1988 and, you know, it's basically like Bob just took the, took the keys and, and ran with it. You know, he, uh, you know, a year later, he's, he's got his solo record. Oddly enough, he's still with, the same booking agent he still has the same manager that that Husker had uh you know he's got a new new record label you know Grant is off and Grant is doing a bunch of different projects and and in a way trying to keep up and compete with what Bob's doing I had a uh a uh another band right after Husker broke up, but we never really, you know, we, we went in, uh, we recorded some stuff in, uh, in the studio, never got it finished. Uh, did one tour in the middle of the summer, which was the worst time to go out on the road. And then, uh, uh, we, we kind of, you know, the guitar player decided he didn't want to be a guitar player anymore. And, and so that was kind of it. Uh, in the meantime, I'm working in restaurants. That's, you know, what I had been doing in the early days of Husker and was back in restaurants and uh, meet a guy named Lenny Russo, who is, um, who's the chef. And he, you know, I, I, I go to work at a place where he is the chef at and then end up kind of following, becoming really good friends with him, following him around uh, various places. And eventually he talks me into the back of the kitchen and starts to teach me how to cook and from there that and it ends up being a uh, a very long career in the restaurant business as a chef um lenny lenny goes on to you know be one of the the top uh minnesota chefs uh frequently nominated for uh, James Beard Best Chef Awards, but he was kind of the Susan Lucci of of the James Beard Awards. He frequently nominated and never never um, never gets the uh, uh, the trophy. Always losing out to either somebody in Chicago or Kansas City. But that really was, you know, at a time where we're actually in, even restaurants were evolving as far as like what food was and, and how you prepare food and, and farm to table and, and um, ended up working with all of these really incredible talented uh, people that, and, and a lot of us went on to have our own places and, and uh, that was, it was like, like you say, it was part of my, development part of, of of how i see the world part of how i think part of how i, I experience things uh broadening my palate you know it's like uh always being open to try new things to to check things out uh having an open mind uh to to the world and it, it was a deep dive, uh, you know, it, and it was long hours. It was it was hot. It was hard. It was um, uh, I, I've been have said before to people in interviews that there is definitely an analogy to uh, working in a, in a kitchen. 
where where you're doing creative food and and uh, playing in a band where you know you, you show up and you get your mise en place in uh together that's like your sound check you've got everything ready and then uh you know it's showtime your menu is your set list you just don't know how many times you're going to have to play the same song over again and then it's hot it's sweaty it's loud at the end of the um of service you get done and you go out and people are like oh that was great best thing i ever ate you know and so you you have it's almost like you have that that instant um instant re- you know response where they're either like that was really great or sometimes they're like wow that you suck you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> which yeah. which and that and that is i think as important people you need to hear people tell you when you do suck uh so that you can be better if if you are constantly being told that wow that was great everything you do is great eventually you start to think Hey, everything I do is great. And then there's like no room for improvement. So, um, and then also with the, the restaurant business, then like, you know, you kick everybody out and it's the club is closed and everybody sits down and smokes cigarettes and, and has, has a drink. So I literally did not play bass for like 14 years. Wow. Didn't even pick one up. Wow. And then I met uh, a guy named Dave King from uh, the, uh, jazz band The Bad Plus, and uh, they had just released a record where they they um, play uh, "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and uh, and I'm like, wow, these guys are pretty cool. And they they were from Minneapolis, and there was an article leading up to a show that they were playing where they talked about how Husker Du was an influence on them, and being a jazz fan really liking this new record i went to see that show and introduced myself after afterwards and uh dave king was like hey i've got an idea for a band you should be in this band with me and and that band ends up being gang font so it took another two years of us claiming that we were once someday going to get together um but he kind of is the guy that that got me to pick up a bass again and start noodling around and you know, I think, you know, gang, the, the first gang font record is, is kind of, you know, well, this is, this is what happens to a, a bass player when he doesn't touch the bass for 14 years and then just, uh, and then doesn't play with anybody when he picks it up and starts playing again. So, uh, gang font is, is, is still an ongoing thing, even though we haven't played a show in about five years. Uh, and we've got a second record recorded, but it's been recorded for now almost 13 years. Uh, and in um, so I like to, to claim it's it's our grand reserva. It's uh, we've been cellaring it for for all this time, and now it's uh, it's finally ready to be to be released and, and opened up on the world. And and hopefully uh, that'll see the light of day sometime in the next year or so. So is it around this time that you wind up playing with Shock and Rationale? too you know actually no shotgun rationale was in um so after so the band that i had right after husker broke up was called gray area Mm -hmm. uh gray area had been broken up for maybe a little over a year year and a half and and sunny uh vincent calls me up out of the blue and says like hey i'm gonna do this tour in canada and i want you to be my my 
bass player. And he's telling me about the band and how Cheetah Chrome has been in the band and Bob Stinson was in, had been in the band and uh, sends me, you know, sends me a couple of, um, uh, I think probably cassettes, you know, so I listened to it and I'm like, yeah, okay, I can play this. I, I, this is kind of some fun stuff. And, you know, Sonny was a, um, he's like that old school New York, like late, 70s kind of punk the testers and right exactly yep and uh so uh he picks me up in red wing minnesota we drive to cincinnati to pick up the um the uh the other guitar player who's got his own roadie and then we go to (laughs) new york where uh gary taylor the drummer lived and that's where we rehearsed uh gary taylor was had been in a um metal band in england called tank (laughs) of course and and so and then uh and then we went and we did our run of shows through canada and it was a lot of fun it it was you know we're playing punk rock it was you know and and this is you know and and i always at the end of Husker, i'm I'm, was always telling people it's like oh punk rock's not dead it's not going away it'll it'll be back you just mark my words on it and we're playing punk and we're just having a blast and Sonny's like, oh, man, you guys should come to Europe. Uh, I can get us all these gigs. And I was like, OK, I would love to come to Europe, uh, but I, I'm going to need to see contracts and I'm going to need to see guarantees. Otherwise, I can't afford to do it. I can't go to Europe just hoping that I'm going to make money. And he can never you know, produce anything like that because he's probably playing squats. Right. So they're yeah. they're not doing guarantees. They're not doing contracts. Uh, so Sonny and I part ways, but then for like the next decade, I, every once in a while, I'll get, get a postcard from Europe and from Sonny, like, <laughs> Hey, look where I'm playing. Wish you were here. You know? and I'm like, ah, oh, you fucker. Uh, so no, that, that was, that was a short little run, but it was, it was fun. Who was the guitar player with his own roadie? I, Paul. His first name was Paul. I'm, I want to say his last name was Young, but I, I'm I'm not positive. I'd have to go and yeah look it up. But and and I can't remember the roadie's name. But but they were they were kind of young and um <laughs> definitely having fun. So yeah, okay, yeah. It wasn't wasn't Cheetah Chrome and and Mo Tucker, which I guess played on the record and right, times. yeah. Um, that's that's wild. So you know, it's funny because you bring up the restaurant thing in in the comparison to the band thing, and just knowing from a bunch of friends that are are punk chefs and stuff like that, it's also a world that can kind of churn you up too. And there's like, oh, yeah. uh, you know, like you mentioned the alcohol. There's also drugs. There's like just like a, it's such an intense lifestyle. It seems. Oh yeah, yep. Uh. You know, when when Bourdain writes in Kitchen Confidential about about you know basically it's like you've got your own pirate crew. It's that's pretty spot on. You know, um, it is intense. It is. It does. It can. It can chew you up. Uh, and 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 kind of like fuck you up big time. But uh, there there again. So so can the music industry. You know, it's it, if you can handle. I guess it comes down to how how you handle pressures like that, you know. 
And also, uh, do you know the chef Maddie Matheson? Are you familiar with that guy? Mm, I'm not sure. He does that TV show, The Bear, now. And, oh uh, yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he uh, bonded with the guy from Vice, like got his start over a love of Husker Du. So that was his <laughs> nice. like a- entryway into this whole thing. And actually, Sarush from Vice used to live in Minnesota and was like a guy has a Husker Du tattoo on his arm. Okay. So it's a. Uh, it's just a. It's it's wild like the cultural impact this band has like you know from robert palmer covering a song <laughs> yeah you know? that was crazy yep and like the anthrax cover thing and all this sort of stuff are you kind of privy to this thing as it's happening being someone who's kind of like you're not even picking up a bass like how in touch with what was going on musically were you able to kind of keep at this point A lot of it, I, I didn't even, you know, realize what was going on. You know, being in the uh, the restaurant industry, and also still, you know, the the internet was not really, that, you know, it wasn't a big thing yet. I didn't get my first computer until like I think nineteen ninety nine or 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 maybe even two thousand. And I remember firing up my computer, like. Okay, what is this search thing? I, and I type in Husker Du, and the and the um, Paul Hillkoff Husker Du database page pops up, and I'm like, "What the fuck is this? Who is this guy?" You know, and I was just like freaking out. It's like, oh, man, he's not Husker Du, you know. So, uh, but but then it's then all of a sudden you you know you see the Robert Palmer thing, you know, and and um, uh. Actually, there's there's a guy, uh, James Hilario, out of uh, Los Angeles. He was in a Husker cover band. He actually flew to, to Minnesota to come to uh, my restaurant in Red Wing. And he was in a Husker Du cover band. And he said that the uh, the drummer of the band was the drummer from Anthrax. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think a couple guys from Anthrax were in that cover band mm-hmm. together. Like, it's... Uh... You know, and of course, you know, Dave Grohl is kind of very vocal about the influence on him. I think like Who's yep. Do and the Melvins are the two bands that really change rock and roll out of that sort of like post hardcore, post punk kind of era. Yep. Uh, the Melvins and Soundgarden opened up for Who's <laughs> uh, in in uh, at the Gorilla Room in Seattle. And it was the Soundgarden's second show ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing how like small, you know, well, I guess relatively speaking, I wasn't there. But like I think in retrospect, how small things were and how how many cool people and creative people and talented people gravitated toward this thing that that ultimately you know, like we we're talking about at the very beginning, it wasn't mainstream. Like there's much easier things to be into. You know, and it kind of continues to be this thing. And then, like, you know, you can just run through all these shows and all these flyers from, like, Duff McKagan and the Farts to Soundgarden. And that's just in Seattle. We haven't even yep. left Seattle. Exactly. Yep. Um, it's a, uh, I don't know, it's amazing. Like, do you feel kind of coming back about to go on tour? Like, um, what are your kind of thoughts on, like, the way things are now in terms of, like, where this whole thing has gone? Where, like, you know, now this trail that you carved is an established sort of like touring circuit you know and and punk is still like you talked about it coming back here we are 
how many years later hardcore bands are playing Coachella. Like it, it really is a part of the cultural landscape. Right. It's, well, it's, it's going to be really interesting to get out on the road. Uh, you know, what I'm really excited about is to kind of see how, how thriving and, and vibrant uh, the scenes are in, in various spots. And, and also at the same time, I know that, that I'm going to be getting to some places that it's going to be a completely like culture shock, different world from what I remember it being. Uh, and, and I'm thinking about Austin in particular here. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't been in Austin for 35 plus years, you know, uh, when we first played Austin, it was kind of a sleepy little town. You're going to be shocked. Anymore. Holy. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Right. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I know that there, there is still a scene out there, you know, there's still an underground, uh, there's still, you know, people that, that, that care and, and, um, th- that part I'm looking forward to. Uh, one thing I've got to ask you about, because this blew my mind finding this out today, you and the rest of, uh, the band, uh, who's do saying backups on brotherhood by DYS. Uh, again, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, the, the, this is something that I found out today and that you were dropped in the studio when they were recording the, the brotherhood album and actually sing uh, backups on the chorus. And <laughs> apparently this is true. This blew my mind. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and double check. Cause I wonder, I wonder if it was just Bob and Grant. I don't know. I, I don't necessarily recall, but you're listed on the reissue as being okay. part of the choir. So definitely. Uh, but that is, it's, it's mind blowing that that is one of those things that, uh, you know, I never stopped being uh, shocked and surprised at the connections in this world. And so, uh, well, Grant, it has been an honor to have you on the show. And anytime you want to come back on and talk about punk, music, rock and roll, or, or restaurants even, uh, you are always welcome. Sounds good. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been um, a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you, Greg, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Greg can come back whenever he wants for more talk. Because there is a... Uh... There's some uh, there's some more talk to be had, that's for sure. And once again, check out Ultra Bomb on tour, ultrabombmusic.com to find out dates and to order the LP if you are not able to see them live. I'm sure if you're able to see them live, grab the record. Talk to Greg. Maybe get it signed. Who knows? I'm not promising anything. I'm not promising a single thing, but maybe it happens. Speaking of stuff that I know that will happen, coming up in a few days, I'm going to put it out this week in uh, celebration of that tour I mentioned off the top, with the hallucination, uh, an episode of Turn Out a Punk Splits with Gerard Cosloy returning to the show, Matador Records owner, proprietor, 12XU owner, proprietor, conflict, conflict scene, uh, former editor in chief, and now, uh, and conflict records too, the bands that could be God Comp. A incredible guy. And Daniel Macabe, my buddy, my pal from BC, returning to the show. Daniel reached out and said, would Gerard want to do a splits with me on the show? I said, I don't know. 
Gerard, you know, you can't force Gerard to do anything. Let me check. I said, Gerard, do you want to do an episode with Daniel? And it's yeah, Daniel is one of my favorite wrestlers uh, going right now on the indie scene. I would love to do an episode with him. I'm not making this up. This is all, you'll hear all about it on the next episode. It's a fun, fun splits. I love the splits episodes. All right, that is it for me. Uh, remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. And, and stop hate and violence towards people of different races and different faiths and just knock out all this fascist bullshit because there is no place in this world for that kind of stuff. This isn't politics. It's not politics. This is just basic human rights stuff. People deserve to be able to live free. And to that, I add, we need to make sure that people are able to choose what they want to do with their reproductive systems and people keep their hands out of other people's reproductive rights because uh, that stuff's under attack all over the place, in Canada too. So if there's something that you see in the world that you think should be uh, changed, get involved. You know, try and try and affect that change yourself. Speaking of getting involved, start a band, start a fanzine. Anyone can do this shit. You know, hard, punk is is based on participation. So who knows? Maybe you wind up being like Husker Du and influencing all of rock music. Maybe not. You know, they're one of the greatest bands ever. So this is a high bar to kind of leap over. But, you know, there's lots of other bars on the way up. So maybe maybe one of those. Uh, and, uh, oh, start try meditating. I didn't believe in it. And now I find it really helps me. Maybe it'll help you too. I'm not the first to discover this stuff. I'm not pretending to be. But I definitely didn't believe in it for a long time. And I wish I had sooner. So maybe it'll work for you too. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. And I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. It can perform miracles for people. So, you know, it's literally dead weight at that point. Oh, geez. I normally do it in a different order. So I don't end it on the, the, the downer point. Well, the meditation stuff. Start a band, start a fanzine. All right, everyone, though, that is it for me. Thank you for listening. And I will see you on the next episode.